0: Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Parenting Aces Radio Show on Blog Talk Radio's UR Tennis Network. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, hoping you all had a wonderful long weekend and celebration of Labor Day. And maybe it included some tennis, maybe it included a break from tennis and some quality family time away from the courts, or maybe a combination of the two. But uh, in any event, hope you enjoyed that little break from the norm. We, for those of you who don't follow parentingages on social media, um, we got a new puppy over the weekend, so. Things have been a little hectic around the stone house, um, trying to get used to our new family member and trying to get him used to us, but uh, it's, it's going pretty well. Maybe <laughs> you haven't seen pictures of Sully on our Facebook page or our Instagram. Take a look. He's really cute. We rescued him from a puppy rescue organization that actually my daughter uh, volunteers with. And they rescue newborn puppies and who have been either rejected by the mom or something's happened to the parents and they can't take care of the pups. And so this organization called Bosley's Place takes them in and cares for them and finds both foster homes and forever homes for these dogs. And so that's how we came to get Sully in our family. And uh, he's a cutie pie, but... Um, I'm just warning you guys, it's like having a new baby in the house. I am extremely sleep-deprived, and so if I sound incoherent at any point during today's broadcast, I'm just going to apologize right now and blame it on lack of sleep, <laughs> for for lack of a better excuse. Anyway, so that out of the way, let me just introduce you to today's guest, Dr. Miro J. Anthony, those of you who have been listening for a while have heard Dr. Jay on my show several times. He is now one of our local Atlantans. We're so glad to have him here. He relocated from Chicago to Atlanta. Um, gosh, I think it's been a little over a year ago now. And he is a tennis medicine specialist uh, working in conjunction with Emory and has been participating in incredible research projects and giving talks all over the place. He's a busy guy. In addition to being a very accomplished tennis tennis player himself and getting himself entrenched in the league tennis world of Atlanta, which you all have heard me talk about before, it's crazy, crazy busy here. So, I'm going to go ahead and bring Dr. Jay on the line because I know he's got a lot of great info to share with us today. Nero, thanks so much for being on the show again. Welcome back from Texas and um, can't wait to hear what, what you've got to talk about.
1: Sure. Actually, uh, you know, I got uh, my introduction to league tennis here. We were actually really excited to make a shout out to my USTA 50 team. We got to the city finals and I. I uh, got a rude awakening to how good league tennis is here by time you get to that level. And <laughs> we did not make it past the city finals, but, uh, um, but, uh, and that's actually a good reason to come to Atlanta because the tennis is so good. No matter how, how well you think you're hitting, there's, there's luck at the end of it. So uh, just lots of great players out here. And uh, it's just, uh, it's amazing how many opportunities there are to play tennis, uh, much less do all the other stuff that we're trying to do on it. So, so happy to be out here for that. Um, and uh, you know, I had mentioned to you before. I try to. Um, I'm giving a certain talk uh, somewhere, wherever it is in the world, uh, and sometimes even locally. I would like to bring some of the information back to your show and your listeners, and um, and so in some of the information, we try to always bring new information onto your show. And so most recently, uh, um, Mark Kovacs held the World uh, International Tennis Performance Association (ITPA) conference here in Atlanta area, um, just last well, now actually it would be in July, um, great, great, you know, conference again and, um, you know, lots of variety of uh, attendees and uh, great speakers. And um, I, he asked me to give uh, a talk on applying research to your tennis player. And, you know, even in the medical world, when you say the word research, you know, people start kind of yawning and go, Oh my gosh, what does that mean? And it makes me so you know, tired and sleepy, I don't want to hear about research, but, but actually most of the stuff we're talking about is actually very practical and, and it's actually makes my day to be able to do kind of specific research. And um, I think that's a, a little bit of um, the direction I'd like to have uh, some of our listeners here. So if I could start by, um, I guess, saying, you know, what does it really mean to actually do research? Well, especially when it's involves tennis players. Well, the, the problem is, is that we've never really had a lot before in the past. I mean, this is very an anecdotal sport, especially in the coaching world. In other words, that means you would, you know, listen to whomever gives you advice based on their anecdotal experience. They, well, like you know, I taught a lot of players and, you know, a certain number of them would actually go on and play in college or I had this one pro, you know, and so on and so forth. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I think you have to have, um, some experience and that's what really that is anecdotal experiences but research is actually a different area where we're actually stepping out of your own comfort zone and your your world of experience but taking everyone's collective experience together and deciding which path is better for the player and uh and it's it's actually if done well It's, it's a lot of work and one of the best examples i can give of that is is uh what the wta did and most recently I've been involved with um, some of the work uh, from uh, WTA on their, what's called their age eligibility rule and the 20 year review. And, and, um, in the early nineties, as many of you guys know, there was a perceived problem with uh, you know, young players um, running into trouble with getting on the tour and possibly getting burnt out and retiring early and quitting their sport, which is actually very harmful for the tour. It's really reliant on a lot of the, good, young, and top players staying on the tour, staying there for long periods of time, as we see with Serena and, you know, uh, other folks um, who who stick around. It actually is it's great for this sport. So they formed a medical commission then and say, hey, look, let's identify what these problems might be and then, and then decide on how to uh, apply or treat it. So they decided to do, as many of you know, the age eligibility rule with which would restrict the number of tournaments and make it a phased-in approach from the age of 14 all the way up to 18. And they keep tweaking and modifying it, but in large part that's the age eligibility rule. It also includes about now has grown to, I would say about 20 player development programs that the players are required to complete um, anything from how to handle finances to how to handle media to sports medicine, sports science, and um, just on and on down the road, what it, what it really means to be a player at that level. Um, just of note, we don't have those types of things for junior players, <clears throat> which is something you and I had talked about a little bit, Lisa. And, um, and so they applied this intervention, and, and, and this took years to develop and really make it the right type of thing. They interviewed many, many, many hundreds of players and um, staff and player support teams, and, and they evaluated themselves at 10 years. <clears> at <throat> the 10-year review, they saw their great successes, which is premature retirements went down. Um, substantially uh, from about seven percent to only one percent, um, meaning that retiring before the age of 22. And um, and they saw career longevity increase and, and overall happiness with the tour. And, and really, there's no other organization, professional or really other that has had a long-term review of their own organization and published it uh, to look at it scientifically. And in fact, we're involved with the 20-year review now, and I can't share any of the data because it's uh, kind of tight to the chest with WTA now, but it's just phenomenal that they continue on with reevaluating themselves to make sure they're doing the right thing. And and it's That's that awesome. type of work that actually does it. Yeah, it's, no one, NFL doesn't do it, Major League Baseball, we all talk about it. They have they have certain rules in, instigated, but they don't, you know, do a self-evaluation. And I can't even tell you how many conference calls and, and their international conference calls and how many – you know, emails and meetings we've had over the last, I've been involved with the last two years um, to help do an evaluation, produce, it, and go on, you know, go on site and recruit players and everything. And it's just um, absolutely, um, you know, it's, it's, it's top-notch stuff, and that's the level they'd like to keep it at. So, so I think that's some of the context we're talking about when you're applying it at that level.
0: So from a medical standpoint, Niru do you feel like it would be important for all of the organizations to do similar type of research and maybe look at, you know, in terms of the junior players, Not, I'm not even talking about at the professional level, but at the junior level, mm. maybe look at rates of burnout and, you know, compare how many tournaments kids are playing to the rate of burnout or rate of injury or things like that, or is that research being done?
1: Yeah, well, so that's what I... Spent the last 10 or so years trying to do. <laughs> it's, uh, um, so what we've learned in sports now, sports has gotten so sports specific too. So we've done a lot of youth sports research and youth sports data talking about like the number of hours just playing a week being less than your age. And, you know, we've talked about specialization, all these other concepts before, and they can be helpful for the average um, kid who's making some sports selection choices. But when you get into that area where you are, you know, a full, full out junior tournament player, full time academy kid or whatever it is the, the only the tennis data matters to you. And so, um, so it really has to apply to what you, so when you, the caution is when you, when we've done this, we've, when you produce, you know, research and data, you have to look at large, large amounts of kids and junior players uh, and you have to accept that it doesn't apply to everyone. So, you know, why, you know, I speak to coaches a lot, and we, we kind of go over some of these things, like, how many, for example, how many tournaments should you play uh, in a year, how many hours a week you should train. Well, that may actually go completely opposite to what you're doing at your own academy. But it doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong. You just have to recognize that maybe that's when the risk starts to increase. And maybe you have to do other interventions like screening or get them in early if they have some pain. So, for example, we know that if you do more than 16 hours a week um, that you're much more likely to have injury. And that's all across the board, every sport, up to nine times as likely, right? Uh, in fact, like a Spanish study showed that in their junior academies, they had about 50 cases of uh, stress fractures in the back. And 100% of the cases, they did at least, you know, they did at least 16 hours a week of, of you know, training. And so so we know that that amount is, is a lot. It puts you at risk. But how much is necessary to, to be a top-level player? It may be that amount. So, so then you have to be, if you're going to, have them in that environment. I think my feeling is that you have some sort of way to identify early so you just don't get a a bad stress injury that keeps you out three to five months, which is a possibility at that level. So maybe you do injury prevention screening or, you know, you teach everyone these are the high risk areas, the low back, the inside the elbow, the shoulder. And if you have symptoms, you, you need to get that evaluated sooner rather than later because you are at risk. And so you have to balance it with the reality of how training programs go. So we have a bunch of those that we publish actually, uh, you know, what, you know, I, I try to give it to every tenant parent and family when I see them in the office, but, um, and I can certainly send it to you as well, to junior uh, prevention evidence-based guidelines. Now the problem is, is that there's just not enough of it. Like the real researchers would say, Hey, look, there's just, you know, just because I did, I did like four or five of those studies in there. And there's others who've done it. Mark Kovacs has done a few. And, you know, um, some would argue it's, it's not enough to, you know, to be convincing, but we have to have someone, you have to have some sort of speed limit, I say, and, and give some, mm-hmm. you know, some information. Otherwise, um, you know, we're kind of, you know, going without any direction. Like baseball has pitch counts and that was published by ASMI and, and they have few baseball pitch recommendations. And, and so it gives people a guide and we know that less than half people follow it, but at least people have a source and they, can you know refer to it, and then it's endorsed by USAU baseball. So I think we, we do need more of that, um, not just from injury risk, but from player development point of view. What does it take to be you know a, a good player, top level player?
0: So let me ask you this, then. Um, so you're saying 16 hours a week of training is really the threshold um, under which you can likely continue to play injury free above which you're likely to develop
1: some sort of debilitating injury. Am I saying that right? Well no, yeah, it's in that that's a part of being scientific. So yeah and with all due respect, sorry Lisa that, No, it's fine. That, and uh, I'm
0: not that's why I'm ask, I am asking for clarification yeah. I yeah. I want to make sure so, I'm
1: understanding. Exactly. And that's actually how it's very easily interpreted. And then that then then sometimes you end up being the doctor's like, No, you're playing too much. And so what it means is that for example, if you are uh, if you took a group of kids and you train them at more than 16 hours a week versus a group of kids at less than 16 hours a week, the group of kids who are at more than 16 hours a week are more likely to develop an injury than those that are less than 16 hours a week in tennis. And and in, in actually, even say more hours per week than their age, but it doesn't mean that they will, right? So let's say, right. You know, maybe they're twice as, or maybe actually, i odds probably four or five more likely to be honest in tennis, kids. but. But so, let's say twenty percent of the kids are getting hurt at more than sixteen hours a week. Well, then maybe only five percent get it less than five. You know, and I actually mm-hmm. think those numbers are being pretty gracious. But but it, it's just you're more likely, and so in in certain okay. areas it's so, more concerning. So,
0: right. So I, I my reason for trying to understand this is so we understand that most high level high-performance tennis players, juniors, are training at least 16 hours a week and likely significantly more than that. Um, and whether that's because a coach has said that's what you need to do to reach the highest levels or it is in reality what you need to do to reach the highest levels. Um, so if let's assume that the majority of them are training higher than that you know, more than 16 hours a week, what are some things that they need to be doing to offset the negative impact right. of that, that overtraining? And I'm uh,
1: using air quotes that you can't see. Yeah, question. And number one, we'll say for runners, for example, that number is 40 miles per week, okay, of running. Like if you run, you know, more than 40 miles a week, we know that your injury risk increases significantly the most top programs run at 60 miles a week. (laughs) So they know that there's some attrition that goes on. You know, all the coaches, this is not a, you know, um, this is a relatively universal thing. Most college programs, the top high school programs, and some will even go higher than that, right, 60 to 80 miles a week. And so one is, and this sounds terrible, but like we'll use running as an example. There's just an attrition where they know that, hey, 10 or 20% of the kids aren't going to be able to make it that level, and they're just not going to be elite runners so it, there's a darwinism survival of the fittest concept and and i'm actually okay with that concept like you know you know as being a college team doctor for many years at division one level like not everyone can play college sports and so you have to get the, the people who can tolerate it and can make it all the way through but the question is how, and i always ask the coaches how much are you willing to give up so let's say you know 10 percent of your kids are hurt you have a, you're college basketball coach and I would ask him I'd say hey 10% of your kids are hurt is that acceptable with 15 kids you have one or two kids are that's pretty much expected right if 20% are hurt when does it start impacting you and your program and you know and the kid themselves so um, Mm -hmm. that's kind of a big picture for the coach now if it's your kid it's not that good (laughs) if you're the kid who's not making it through and some kids have to trade they have to trade in a lower lower volume and and that's what we've had college athletes who I've had college runners who run at 30 miles a week and you know, you have to, at some point you could be a lower volume trainer. I mean, where you're, you're not, you just can't tolerate 16, 20 hours a week and you know, you have to train. The other thing is um, now it's sort of like gymnastics where they're in the gym 20 to 25 to 30 hours a week. But when they're there, it doesn't mean that they have to be doing all the gymnastics specific activities. And so some of it is off court conditioning, right? So if you're at the academy, I think, I mean, it's fine, you know, if you're there, if you're full-time, that's your thing. But some period of time, you know, should be allotted towards off-court conditioning to, like you said, neutralize some of the effects of it. But it can't be the exact same things you're doing on court. So you have to have some recovery, obviously, right? You have to have, um, you know, some injury prevention, which is, you know, you talk for hours about the types of things, of course, stability and upper extremity strengthening and certain areas of flexibility. um, But it can't just be, you know, another hour of, fitness, you know, speed drills after a four-hour practice because there's going to be, um, you know, again, some negative effects of, of doing that. And the other part I actually think is finding a way to uh, cross-train um, and do activities that aren't tennis at all. And so I just – I really still – in developing athletic skills. I mean, kicking a soccer ball around or, or you know, shooting hoops or anything else just to offload your body. And um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I think the high-risk kids, this is, of course, my personal opinion, I've said it before, would benefit from some sort of some sort of screen, some sort of evaluation where they have an access to, to being seen or being evaluated immediately for anything that, that could be of concern before it gets to be a later stage stress factor that keeps you out for three to five months. And right. we see too much of that, where it's like, well, it's sore, but I gotta get I gotta get through this tournament. And then you're like, well, it's kind of getting sore, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh my god, I can't even lean back like five degrees. That it hurts so much, and then and then it's already too late. And so we want to try to get avert those things when we can.
0: I had Jeff Rothschild on the show a few months ago, and one of the things that he talks a lot about is the impact that sleep has on performance, and I'm wondering if, if y'all are looking at that, you know, in your studies too because especially with the teenagers, um, you know, the kids that are that are going through puberty and are um, they've got the hormone surges and all the other things and the stresses of high school and that stuff, um, I would think that sleep would have a big impact uh you know and and i I wonder if there's a way that y'all can make recommendations to tournament directors where you know the younger kids start early in the morning you you give the older kids the opportunity to sleep in a bit and so they're not sleep deprived throughout competition. Is that something y'all are looking at? <laughs>
1: Well, I'll address the first part is that we actually do really believe in the sleep issue and sports performance and injury risk. Uh, um, I'm the first editor on uh, this British Journal of Sports Medicine special issue on the young athlete, and we have commissioned certain articles, and one of them is actually on a systematic review of sleep and the athlete. And so uh, some of our colleagues submitted this with, I mean, it was started with about 4,000 articles whittled down to, you know, about 100 that they really closely reviewed, and we do know that there is an an injury risk potential and it probably does impact performance. And, and it could be the need of getting maybe eight, even to nine hours of sleep. They've divided up as high as that. So, you know, uh, the night before, and so you all know that that's probably not happening a lot of (laughs) times and it's such a simple thing to try to institute. Right. But you're also dealing with teenagers and teenage personalities and, you know, college athletes and, you know, folks who are coming from, you know, this is real life too, you know? So, so I think the first part of it is, yes, I, you know, I definitely agree. Um, I, you know, when we're doing research, you you can't have too many hypotheses. So for example, we're doing, well, I'll talk a little bit later about our stroke analysis research study, but um, we, uh, we certainly believe in it, you know, but the, the second part of it is actually working with tournament directors to do this. Well, I think that is, the biggest challenge, and, and I can't even for a minute say, hey, look, I have the power, the ability to influence what termites, how tournament directors run tournaments, even despite uh, you know, some data that we have or others have produced on you know, potential risk and exposure to heat and playing a second match and the rest periods in between and all these types of things. Well, as you know, I mean, there's a th- thousands of tournament directors across the country, so how you reach them and how you implement change really has to come from organizational methods and that's through usta itself which is in the itself of a, of a challenge to try to um you know on the priority list of things trying to get some of those things um modified it's you know it uh it, that that's there's a lot of things if you had to write a list of things to do i think sleep is one of them but i think there's a, a lot of things that and making change like 51% agree with it, and 49% vehemently oppose it. And so, because <laughs> there's right. so many stakeholders, as you know, so um, so I try to stay away from that and just produce the evidence and have the people who are the stakeholders make the decisions about what's the best. We try to deliver the evidence and have the people who make the decisions about how to run things, their academies and the you know um, the tournaments. I think those they, they can then apply those decisions.
0: Right. So I guess, you know, from the parent side and, you know, just wearing my parent hat right this minute, it it gives me comfort to know that somebody like you is out there doing the research, A, but B that you are presenting at these meetings and not just the the medical meetings or the science meetings, but you're you're presenting at the tennis meetings. And so those stakeholders, as you call them, are hearing this data that you're presenting. I mean, they're getting it and whether or not they choose to act on it, I guess is outside of your purview, but at least it's in their hands and, you know, hopefully they will act on it and do what's in the best interest of these young athletes.
1: So um, we have had the, you know, the really the, the fun privilege of going out to a number of the academies here in the Atlanta area and, and doing, you know, testing at a number of the academies, and you know, working with the pros out there, and um, and the kids, and you know, obviously the parents get involved. And right now we have about 120 kids enrolled in this. I think it's right around there. And this stroke analysis, uh, like stroke efficiency research study, that Mark Kovacs and I are doing. And you know, it's uh, it's actually been great. I mean, I really have to say, the, I mean, the pros themselves get it. I think it's just a, it's a challenge like I mean um, they do want the kids to stay healthy and they do want they want them to be successful and I think they they really in large part um, have the the kids in their vested interests and I think it's, a, it's sort of like anything in in life like when there's a, it's a small group of of people in any system you know like there's a small group of people or bad doctors that can make doctors look bad there's a, a small group of bad policemen maybe that make the whole police force. Uh, it could be perceived as being bad when it's not, you know, and all these types of things. I think, uh, you know, same thing with coaching. I think in large part, you know, I, like I said, I spoke at the ITA college coaches thing. I think the coaches were phenomenal. They all had the best interest of in their players. And I think I feel that same way about the, you know, junior coaches and the academy coaches, they really do have the best interest in the players. You know, there's maybe, you know, some areas for disagreement on a few things, um, even between coaches, not just, you know, what, kind of data we put out so so it is there it's just a question of um you know again what does it take to develop the best player and, and sometimes there's a learning process involved for all of us so you you do one process you find oh that kid got hurt because everyone responds differently to it. we have kids i have kids who are doing six hours a week who've had some serious overuse medical issues and i kind of scratch my head saying how did you end up doing this is nobody's fault <laughs> no, this, you know you end up there and I have, you know you have some kids who you know, who train, you know, exceedingly high and really haven't run into a problem. But so when we give recommendations, what we try to do is give recommendations that apply to the majority of people. And so it doesn't apply to 100%, but the majority of people yet. And to, to just be, to have some overall responsibility and then, and like I said, in, when it, you know, if it doesn't apply to you, you've been doing okay, we don't want to change a lot, but, um, but we had to be cautious, and I think that's what the like the tours, of WTA and those folks—they're really great at both tours. Actually, we're running our World Congress in tennis, Math, and Tennis Medicine Science in December second uh, through the fourth in Amelia Island. And anyone who's interested, we'd love to have any—you don't have to be medical to be out there coaching and any tennis enthusiasts. But this is if um, uh, you go to www.stmsconference.com and. Um, You know, we try to present a lot of information, and one thing both tours really are emphasizing. And I, getting emails from them, both are planning on presenting quite a bit on their uh, screening methods for their players. Um, And they, you know, they want to stay ahead of the game on identifying those that would be at risk and start working on um, addressing those deficits. uh, You know, where the strength deficits are, those flexibility deficits, where there's pain. Um, So. And I think there's an opportunity to do that at, the, at all levels, actually. And that's where I'm trying. In fact, we're probably going to try to work out something where we have a similar model for the junior players um, to try to help identify these things and, and then uh, have them work on it and then go back to their academy to work on it with the folks at the academy.
0: That sounds fantastic. I mean, I you know, let's face it. The majority of junior players are not going to the pro tour. Um, we hope that a good number are going to wind up playing in college and we hope that an even greater number are going to wind up playing for life. You know, they're going to stick with the sport um, in in perpetuity of their own life. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, injury prevention is really at the base of any of these things happening. I mean, it's at the base of a kid being able to play on the pro tour is at the base of a kid being able to play in college and, and being able to play throughout life. So it, it seems to me that it's just such a, a basic piece of the puzzle that, um, you know, I, it's surprising that there's such little data out there, but I'm grateful that you're trying to change that and really trying to educate people, um, so, you know, why don't you share with us some specifics? Um, I know you, you said you wanted to talk about um, how to translate some of this stuff to stroke production and, you know, how that impacts uh, coaching and all of that. So,
1: you know. Sure. Well, I'll tell you simply why there's so little data. on I'm going to take you through what's involved, and in, we're doing a stroke analysis research study, and I'll tell you what was involved from the beginning of it. To where we are now, and then where this would go to at the end of it, okay? And you'll understand pretty quickly why uh, there's not enough research <laughs> in this area, okay? Yeah. So number one, I'll start with it's unfunded in large part. In other words, I don't get paid for doing this. And you know the folks that I work on, we got a small grant from the foundation that goes to like administrative costs, to like run the website a little bit, that uh, does the you know surveys and so on and so forth. So essentially, it's it's all volunteer time, right? So this project that we're currently doing now, I would say about two years ago is when I actually started it, uh, I had, and actually many years ago, but I, I had been going on court with injured kids when they um, were struggling with either recurrent or serious overuse injuries. And then um, instead of just treating the medical side, I would actually take them on court. I taught for many years and, and look at the things where I, I felt like I could give feedback to the, to the pro that they work with just either once or twice. and. We published this on court stroke modifications. We felt like most kids were able to return successfully, like about 90, 95 percent, um, and some of them were very challenging. Uh, had challenging, as they were flying in and coming, you know, from all over just because nobody else was doing, you know, doing this. But to be scientific, I thought, well, why do I have to wait till they get hurt? I wish I could objectively assess them better. So what we did was create what's called a stroke efficiency rating, and this was taking all the evidence that was out there about what certain parts of the stroke would put you at increased risk for injury and which ones would actually improve your efficiency and taking all the existing data with a little bit of what we call clinical expertise built into that. In other words, you know, just my experiences there, Mark Kovacs, um, saying, Hey, look, you know, you have to have, there isn't data for everything. So you have to fill in the gaps. Right. And so we wanted to create a 99 point, like a scoring system. So you could basically say, okay, this kid had, you know, a seventy seven out of ninety nine on forehand, back end serve and you know, based on basically about fifteen areas of the serve and, you know, ten areas of the forehand and eight areas of the back end and so on and so forth, rated between zero and three. And to create that, I, I had actually a, a tennis medicine internship staff like from last two summers ago took about I would say about nine months just to create because we know that there are very knowledgeable coaches out there and if we don't have what we would consider the most evidence-based, the best potential scale that we could have. No one's going to use it because we're not doing this. Like both Mark and I, do not have the time to go out and actually teach and you know and implement this. This is really to produce something for coaches. So then we figured if you get this scale, a third of them are for in, we know are tied into injury risk, and about two thirds are for for efficiency. But there's a lot of overlap. So you know something for injury prevention is actually good to improve your stroke. And and so if they're not like completely two separate things so once we create this table that's all great that's just the beginning of it that was that took nine months to get to that point that's just the beginning so then now Mm. what we need to do is get uh emory university to approve such an innovative study that they don't do anything on tennis courts and we're doing minors we're doing you know you know people under 18 so you have to get approval from the emory institutional review board including getting informed consent and approvals for the consent, the study protocol and the whole, that whole package. Right. And so that takes quite a long time, you know, several months to just, and we're lucky I've written a lot of these, so we're lucky we got it in on the first try. Otherwise it could take six months to get approval. Right. So then now we're approved to do the study, but then now we've academies to come out to their academies and do research on their players and their parents. And, and so through, you know, growing connections, and you know, I think a few people through just doing your show, and you know, Mark Kovacs has connections, and we, you know, we have um one of our physical therapists from uh you know Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, um, who's very interested in tennis Eileen. She she would you know reach out to folks, and through all this, we we're able to get to ten or twelve or whatever academies. Um, and then in doing that, just getting to the academy, you have to arrange it, get online consent uh, from not only the kids, the parents, um, and then find a time on their court during their practice. There's a logistic aspect to it, right? So you have to do all this, and then I have a busy clinical practice. I can only go out in Thursday afternoons, for example. And you get out there, you arrange the date, and then um, and then some of the kids have their consent sent, some of them don't, some of them aren't interested in it, some of them are. Um, and then and then you do all that, and then it rains. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then and Thursday afternoon rains like it actually happened uh, about a half a dozen times, and so a few of them had indoor backups and other things like that. But you know, uh, so you have to do that. And this so in the so now recruiting, we've been recruiting for about four to you know four four to five months or so, solid, and we've accrued about you know 125 people. But we still have they have to complete their uh, consent, they have to complete their player development surveys, and then we do a follow up at six months in a year. And you're doing and then all of this actually again remember you're doing this in addition to your regular life. Um, We find it to be very important. Okay. And there's no, you know, like, there's no salary at the end of it. There's, there's not like a a downstream, like, you know, this is going to you know, like grow a huge portion of my business or something like that. Cause you're all, you're doing this to prevent problems. Right. So that's actually bad for my business. Right. Cause then if people don't get hurt, then they don't have anyone to see. Right. But you know, don't worry that people will still be getting hurt unfortunately through this process. But, so then, at the end of it, when you collect the data, now we have, we'll have probably our goal is to get about 200 um, videos, which is forehand, backhand, surf. So that's 600 videos. Now we have to go analyze them, again, find a way on your own time, and so on and so forth. So then, and then you produce, you know, uh, basically nine nine-point scales on 600 vid- uh, on 200 kids. So it's all 600 videos. You have to analyze it with statistics, which takes, you know, quite a long time. To do it properly then we present it nationally and then we try to publish it which takes probably another year or so to publish it and then after doing all that you might have a coach up there and say well that doesn't happen with my kids <laughs> so, right. so you have to get buy-in right you have to you have to you know we're not trying to do anything that's in any way threatening we're not trying to change we actually said we're not trying to change the style of how people teach or anything like that what we're trying to do is develop something objective so you can compare and actually encourage people to work with their pro. If you're a 12 year old kid and you have a score of 31, well, you have a goal then maybe when you're 13, you'll have a, a 40 or something like that. And you'll watch yourself develop and grow. And then you have a, a, a more objective measure as you go on. And then hopefully in doing that, you also reduce your injury risk. And, you know, and I think that, and that's the process. I, the thing I find exciting is that it may help some, but not all, but some coaches change or, you know, the way they approach, um, giving feedback to their um, to their kids. There will be many coaches who won't use it, don't believe it, um, and that's fine because some people have been very, very successful without any of this. But we we feel like this can be helpful for some folks who are interested in being, I guess, a little more objective or scientific in their evaluation. Um,
0: it's it's and then so interesting to part. to hear you talk about the process of of, you know, getting these studies underway and and collecting the data. I mean, holy cow. Um, Thank you. (laughs) Let me just say that. Thank you for doing it because I, you know, none of us wants our kids to wind up injured so that they can't do the things they want to do, whether that's play tennis or, you know, just run around with their buddies. I mean, we want our kids healthy, of course. And I think, I mean, it's interesting because, I'm a big fitness buff, and I, I take a lot of classes at a lot of different fitness facilities. And it's amazing to me how many times I walk into a class and the instructor is teaching something that is so dangerous and, you know, just sets everyone up in the class or injury or, you know, extreme muscle soreness or tears or whatever that's going to keep them out of the gym for X number of weeks, and which is the total opposite of what you're trying to accomplish, right? So mm-hmm. the same thing on the tennis court. And, you know, I think by studying these various issues, I mean, hopefully, like you said, you know, you're going to have an impact and keep more kids
1: playing and more kids active. Right. And I don't think there's any coaches who are intentionally trying to figure out a way to, to get their kids hurt or, or impact their performance negatively. There isn't anyone who's trying to do that. Uh, so, you know, I think everyone's trying to develop their players and, and, and get them to be injury free. That, that that's nothing novel. I think everyone's trying to do that. I think the more information you have about how to go about doing that is the better. And that's, that's for coaching. That's for medicine. I mean, it's the same thing. We, you know, we, we always had this, we have the saying that in medical school, when you start uh, about 50% of the things that you learn, won't be, be able to be applied later on in life. They'll probably be wrong. And then because, you know, research and science and over, you know, time, you'll figure out which things are actually correct. The problem is you don't know which 50% is wrong, <laughs> So you learn everything. And then, uh, and then you go on and you realize, oh, my gosh, like oh, so concussion is a great example. Oh, my gosh. I tell parents all the time, like, you know, we see lots of concussions. And, you know, how I managed concussions 15 years ago to five years ago to even this, you know, in just in the last year is actually quite different um, and almost opposite in some ways. Uh, I mean, it's gone a full, you know, pendulum swing. We used to – football games and kid would get a concussion. We'd seen back in 15 minutes, and then if you look okay enough we just do a couple of simple tests and we say go back in there and this was a regular standard of care um which is absolutely shocking what even happened the nfl today um so it's, it's you know things go you know a lot of different directions so i think the more information that's because we've accrued more information and you know we feel like we can better educate obviously now everyone's aware of concussions and there's a lot of education involved but um and so it's the same thing I'd like with tennis, which is just get more awareness of what are the, what are the things we can do. So one of the things that we're we're going to try to do, and maybe we're hoping we can use your platform is to reach parents and coaches through, you know, kind of medical education, like in performance, uh, you know, series where maybe every couple of months or something like that, we try to reach out to the parents to pick a specific topic and, um, and then show them physically how to do their own injury prevention and, and exercises, and then also talk about any topic from stroke mechanics to, to nutrition, to female health issues and heat uh, and, and using, you know, presenting all the evidence that we know basically the same concept we presented our world and tennis mess and Congresses that all the tours use and USTA pro circuit and everyone, why not give that information? Why we, why hold that information back from, from our junior players? Like it's great information. So I think I would like all that same information to go back to, our junior players, so um, so hopefully we can you know your platform is great because there's so many such a variety of folks who are on it again that are I think are key stakeholders too
0: so what can we do to help you know do a better job with these kids, because you know I know from personal experience what it's like when your kid is injured and can't be on the court, can't be in the gym and Um, nobody wants to go through that. I mean, the emotional stress of it alone is (laughs) awful. So talk about the the on-court stroke analysis that you do and what you're learning from
1: that. So um, basically, I'll go into a few specifics because I think we have a lot of tennis people and and coaches and people who who understand the game, so they'll understand some of these uh, specifics. But basically... I'll start with one of them, which is the low back, which I always talk about. You know, it was probably the most common reason for me to, uh, at least in our publication, the most common reason for me to go on court with a, a junior tennis player is because of a recurrent low back stress injury, which we can say that probably up to 40 to 50 percent of young athletes who have low back pain that lasts for at least a couple of weeks or more have a chance of a stress fracture in the low back or a stress injury somewhere along that spectrum, which is an incredibly high number. So, again, the early recognition, as soon as you have that, you know, that soreness and high-level player, we'd love, for, you know, we'd love to take a look at those quickly rather than a late-stage lesion. And then when we're done treating or if we recognize it early we're able to return them to court earlier, so the difference is you get them early, it might take two weeks of treatment to get them off, reduce any you know, injury risk, and then make a stroke modification and send them back versus three to five months if you get it late. So there's, just to give you an example, the difference um, of early versus late recognition. And so um, I had for years knowing some of the data out there um, suggested that, um, you know, you should not get lumbar extension or low back when you lean back on your serve more than 20 degrees, because we know that in biomechanical studies, that's where it increases your risk of what's called the part into but the back half of the spine gets the most stress, 20 degrees. And so, as you know, many, um, many, players of all levels do kind of arch their back back, particularly on a kick serve. And um, so the question is, you know, is that really a potential risk or not? So with the kids who are, have had an injury and had a low back stress injury, it's pretty clear that since the risk of re-injuring the low back is like five or six times as high that we have to make that correction. Like if you already had the problem and if you have a stress fracture, you have to make the correction because it's, it's usually not going to work, especially as an adolescent. So, so we made those corrections. But the question now is moving forward is, when we evaluate these videos is if you see the kids, if you're 12, 13, 14 years old, and you have quite a bit of extension on your serve um, through either preparation when you're loading or your acceleration phases of your serve, should you make that change before that happens? Because especially if you're doing, so think about it, you're doing 16 or more hours per week, you're a young growing boy or girl, and you have a lot of low back extension on the serve with high tournament volume. I think if you put it all together, your, your risk is actually a lot higher. So one of those things has to change. You can reduce your volume. You can reduce your tournaments. Um, you can modify your stroke. And so hopefully some, so you have to look at the whole big picture and say, okay, who is that risk? That's actually the concept, for example, in the low back. And you ask like, how do you, you know, how can you prevent these things? I think you have to look at all that's in front of you and say, you know, I, I we have something on our website. If you go to like Emory tennis medicine, just like kind of go down a list of things and say, look, which of these things does your son or daughter have, like, how, you know, their tournament volume, their training volume, and all that. And then if they have low back symptoms and they're high risk, someone, they need to be checked out right away. Um, if they're not having pain, but you see this on their stroke, I think I believe, and we, we probably will believe if our evidence shows us that those are the kids who have the future risk of having that problem. So I don't think mm. only a few happen by accident. I think most of them are predictable. And since, we get more information. They're more predictable. Let's try to get a, one step ahead. You won't get all of them, but if you get, if you can save a few, you know, um, right. then I think, you know, we can, you know, be in better shape. Mark Kovac did a study of, you know, about when should you start to kick serve? And, you know, he had one, he published this in our tennis medicine journal, but he had about a hundred high level coaches and a hundred high level players. And, you know, around the age of just under 13 years old is when, um, they were uh, starting to kick serve, which is probably a little bit later than most people would think. Um, and I think he was looking at shoulder in other areas, but I actually am more concerned about the low back.
0: And are you saying that just before the 13th birthday, <laughs> excuse me, is okay or not okay? Well,
1: so the thing is, everyone's individual, right? You could have a 13-year-old who's very mature. A 13-year-old girl is very mature and and – skeletally mature and gun growing and having you know secondary sex characteristics and um, and certainly ready to move on and, and hit 13 year old I and mean, hit hit kick serves right um, You could have a 13 year old boy who hasn't even hit his pubertal growth phase yet uh, and um, cannot tolerate that volume at all and so it, it is very individual and that that's the problem with uh, trying to make too many blanket recommendations we have to give a general recommendation say look Maybe delay kick until at least 13, but I think this doing the stroke evaluation makes it individual a little bit more. So what we're going to mm-hmm. do is actually try to collect data on a, on a breadth of ages, and um, we're using they getting their height and weight and, and, and getting the spectrum of it, and then try to normalize it for it. So say, look, if you're if you're doing this, you know, uh, how do you compare to other 12 or 13 year olds that are boys or girls, and and really try to put in the context of um, you know a little bit more individual um, recommendations because, you know, that would be an easy argument as well. You know, I have a 13-year-old girl who's very mature and she's ready for it, and I would agree. So, I, right. you know, so overall, we might say yeah, 13 is the number, or we might say, can you hit, it doesn't have to be the biggest kick serve in the world, and I would argue that you can actually get a reasonable kick serve or a topspin second serve in 20 degrees of lumbar extension, and I think you can. And we've seen a, a good amount. Um, and then you add trunk rotation, and you add what we call sagittal plane motion, and and then a uh, coronal plane motion, and you can actually make those changes. And I've done that on court a number of times for those kids who've already had the problem. And so in lower body force generation, so there's a lot in you know shoulder tilt, and there's there's really a lot of other ways to accommodate yourself. serve. Um, what, so. One of the
0: takeaway messages I'm, you know, I'm thinking about as I'm listening to you talk is the importance of planning in all of this, you know, that you really have got to have a developmental plan for for each kid based on their individual weight, height, development as, you know, human development, um, where they are in the growth process. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you you know, when you wing it is when most of the time you're going to wind up getting into trouble because all of a sudden you find that your child's overtraining or overplaying um, in terms of tournaments. And, you know, that's when the injuries come. So, I mean, this has been one of those issues that, that I've talked about a lot over the last few years is you know, having the parents sit down with the coach and devise a plan. It doesn't have to be a 12-month plan, but it certainly should be at, at minimum a three-month plan, preferably a six-month plan. And, of course, you can reevaluate if things aren't going as you expect. But, I, I mean, if, if you're just going out there and kind of flailing in the dark, you're you're really putting everybody at risk for disappointment and injury.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I'm actually trying to stay away from just only talking about the injury side because, you know, if you don't get injured, then there's, you know, there's no point in talking about injury and, and most kids, you know, you know, aren't thinking about injuries. Most of the thing about performance, so I really, what we call this is, for example, we call this a stroke efficiency rating. What we're trying to do is actually make your stroke as efficient as possible and try to you know over many years, you know there's breakdown, and you know you know something happening is i don't want to think is inevitable, but if you have inefficient mechanics and high volume at some point, you know the likelihood of breakdown is is, is going to happen right, and so the more ways we can figure that out, and so like for shoulder, for example, we have about one, two, three, four, five five solid weights that we we avoid hyperangulation where you you know, where your shoulder elbow and, you know, your toss arm is lined up a shoulder leg where your arm doesn't get up to 90 degrees of abduction quickly enough. And we call short arm axis where when you're making contact with the ball and your on um, uh, your serve that your elbow is straight rather than having even a little bit of bent, um, you know, partial into it to reduce the elbow risk. And, you know, we know knee flexion of your rear knee should be more than your front knee. And then uh, Carolyn Martin did a really nice study looking at energy transfer. So basically going from your lower body to your upper body. if It's just like kind of you go down and up real quickly, then you're, you know, you're more likely to have shoulder symptoms and also poor efficiency. And so we like to pe- have people transfer a little more slowly. And so all these things supported by data. And actually, if you watch, you watch people who do this very well, you'll see just a really remarkably efficient stroke. Um, and in doing all of that, we believe that you reduce your injury risk because a third of them are related to injury risk. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, I, I know I've been, I told this. I've done a lot of different research and, and I've been really fascinated by this particular uh, study just because it, you know, I'm learning so much It's watching so many different types of strokes and really critically evaluate so many different parts to a stroke. And, and I say, it's not, you don't want to just look at the kids that you only work with, but just that, like take you know you take 10 different academies and you get you know 12 or 15 kids from each academy and you kind of pool them all together and you get some data i think it's really intriguing to see what comes out and you know for my role at the end like i still go on court when kids get hurt but now i'm hoping to go on court before they get hurt i'm hoping actually to make maybe make this a thing where we actually like you said like parents can meet and i can help work with them potentially and and then um you know, we do an injury prevention screen. We do a stroke evaluation, then we give them feedback, and we and we communicate with their pro. We're not in any shape, form, or anything like that to run some academy. We, we we want to just give feedback and then um, have the pro feel confident that, look, hey, here's some stuff that people are trying to do to just help augment what you're doing. And, and that's really nothing more than that. And, and I can't stress that enough because I'm kind of new to the area. When I was in Chicago, I think all, many of the pros knew me for – so long i taught in the area and they knew what i was trying to do and so i hope and i feel like you know we're getting the same type of positive feedback here where you know people know that i'm here just we and me and the folks that i'm working with on this is you know we're just trying to get as much information back to uh the training academies. nothing makes me happier than watching a kid that i you know got to see uh and then just go see him at a tournament and have a smile on their face and playing lots of matches and feeling great so um that's really the, the payment out of it. People I don't even take I don't even accept any money for that, Which is even the crazier part, right? <laughs> Parents go, How do you right. how do you pay you? And I go, I don't know. I go, Just send me a picture of your kid at a tournament, that's usually what I say. <laughs> that then that I know awesome. they're doing well. Then uh you know, it's uh so and it's good and it's actually and I tell cause like, so it's not a one time thing. It's actually you develop this relationships over years. I have kids who are still coming back who I work with in Chicago, they come back to Atlanta to come, you know, see me and work with me and stuff and and then that's the payment is that they trust and respect you, that you're going to try to, um, you know, try to give them the best information you can, and keep working. It takes a lot of additional communication with the pros and uh, and everyone. So, so, well, so, we'll keep that working on that. so that you're not bombarded,
0: so that you're not bombarded with phone calls and emails after this show, <laughs> um, right? Is there an age or a stage of development where you would say, now is a good time to bring your kid to me and let me take a look. I mean, obviously, a kid yeah. just starting out, right, who's playing, yeah. you know, 30 minutes a week or an hour a week, um, that's they're not ready to to have your intervention at that point, right? Maybe right. or right. maybe they are. I don't know.
1: No, no, you're absolutely right. One thing I'm really quick to say, the next thing we're going to do is we're going to do this on adults, which is really going to be precarious because we're going to do research on the same thing on all the adult players in the area, and that's the question but But what we... Oh, I want to be of your I really, <laughs> Right. <laughs> I think we're going to get a lot of volunteers. And So I really say... Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, there's no tennis lesson involved. This isn't a tennis lesson. I, there's no way, I. you know, there's no capacity for it. You have great people who teach tennis. And so it, this is... You know what we you know, stroke efficiency evaluation and injury screen and, and those types of things. That's what we're really trying to do. And so you know, I number one is usually want them hitting on the yellow ball at the minimum, and they're not just hitting that. They are really their tournament players. Um, because if they're still just developing and they're casual player, the interventions we're doing aren't really for kind of the beginner intermediate player to be honest. And by I would say by 90% of them, these are for mostly for tournament players. Um, and those are the kids that are really invested, whether you're a part-time or a full-time academy kid, and that would start 10, 11, 12 years old, you know, if you're a tournament player, you know, and occasionally even younger, I've had, you know, very serious eight, nine-year-olds who, who've had to evaluate, but are truly, you know, going to be going down that path. I think that's when it matters because otherwise if, I think if you take a kid who's still kind of deciding tennis is their thing and they're playing, you know, doing a lot of different things. And, you know, if it's not that important to them, then they're not committed to some of the work that's involved. So I asked the kids, I said, you know, are you committed towards, how committed are you towards like making tennis, you know, your path? And if they're committed, then I think these things matter to them.
0: Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So, yeah, and I think we're a, going to
1: work on program, programmatic stuff for it, but, you know, but I invite people to contact. I've been trying to, I think I've been able to reach most people who have contacted me. Hopefully, I apologize for those that maybe I didn't get back to them. I'm pretty good about it. We have an uh, Emory Tennis Method website, but I can, uh, I don't know how you do communication. or they email you or are they, um, I don't know if I should say my email on online or. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Sure. Uh, I mean, well, um, if you if you want to get the emails, for sure, give it out. If not, if you'd rather them come through me, yeah, that's fine too. That's okay. I'm happy to them. Yeah,
1: sure. And if I just can't accommodate, it's so Neeru J-A-Y-A-N-T-H-I at Emory.edu. So that's N E E R U. Dot Janevi at Emory.edu. We actually did create an Emory Tennis Medicine um, page, uh, so people can go to EmoryHealthcare at TennisMedicine.org. Um, let me see here and I think there's a um, um, there's a tennis medicine email on there as well too so that will essentially come to me because I check that as well too but again just you know trying to reach the folks that need, need the help or want the help is probably the best way to um, do these things um, or you just call, cool. call my assistant yeah
0: Perfect. Well, Neeru, thank you so much for coming back on the show and um, sharing your your latest with us. And you know, we're always here for you when when you have something to share. We we want to hear about it. So I I'm so grateful that you feel comfortable reaching out and saying, Hey, I need to come back on. I've got some more stuff to talk about. So. That's great, and and to my listeners, I, guys, take advantage. I mean, honestly, he is an incredible guy to work with. Um Neera's passion for the game is uh, unmatchable, and it just oozes out of every pore. So I think your kids will enjoy it. He's just he's a fun guy to be around. I think the kids would have a fun time working with him. So. Um, I just want to say thank you again. You know, really love great. having you on Absolutely.
1: the show. Great. And uh, right. we'll have a World Congress in December. Thank you so much. And we'll come Absolutely. back after that. Absolutely.
0: Perfect. Okay. Perfect. All right. Take care. All right. Have a great day. Bye. Thanks. You Sugar too. Bye. Thanks. To my listeners, hope you all enjoyed today's show. And the podcast will be up in a little bit if you'd like to share it with your friends. Hope you all have a great week. And we'll see you next week on Parenting Aces. Spring. It's finally here. Time to clean things up and get back on target. Cabela's Spring Great Outdoor Days. Family events, amazing deals. Your one stop before the range. Save over 20% on PMC 223 rifle ammo. Get $40 off Federal 5.56 bulk ammo and $75 off Smith & Wesson M&P shield pistols. Plus, find more great deals on over 20,000 items throughout the store. Don't miss out. Shop in-store or online at cabelas.com.